Welcome to episode number five in the series on the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, may the Blessed Virgin help us by opening our minds, our hearts, our wills in this episode to further understand and appreciate the glories of the Mass and her most holy Son, which is brought to us in this Mass. My name is Father Jacob Powell, as I have mentioned before, and as a recap, as always, from the previous class, we begin... We moved from Old Testament to New Testament. We spoke about the sacred scriptures as, in a sense, a love note to reveal who God is to us, but also to help us, fallen creatures, who oftentimes have a distorted view of reality, of our own nature, of humanity, of everything, that He helps us in these scriptures to know who we are. How are we to act? Like Christ, the perfect human. He shows us what humanity is. He shows us the very depths of the suffering that humanity can enter into, as well as He shows us the very heights of the glories of humanity if we are united to God. And so we find in the sacred scriptures revelation about who He is. And we find the culmination of scriptures in Christ Himself. All of the Old Testament, these figures, these things, they lead us to Christ. And we went through so many of them. We went through Abraham, we went through uh, Moses, we went through Isaac and Jacob, we went through the Passover and the manna, we went through Melchizedek even before, we went through even Adam himself, King David, all of these figures, all of these events, they all point us to Christ. When we speak about the liturgy, we're speaking about Christ. Therefore, if Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures, then in some way we are living out the scriptures every time we come to Mass. You see, everything in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. Everything in the New Testament speaks about His life, explains His life, His actions, His words to us so that we might better know Him, as well as some that explain how He will come again and the glories that will follow as He does. Therefore, the Mass, excuse me, the, the, the Scriptures, they find their culmination in Christ. But in the same way, so does the Mass. We live out the Scriptures because the most significant part of the Scriptures is the death of our Lord as well as His resurrection. Well, in the Holy Mass, we there, at the sacrifice of Christ, are making present this most holy, salvific action of our Lord. And we are offering ourselves in union with it towards God the Father. In the liturgy, the church offers Jesus in the sacrifice that was the one that took place 2,000 years ago to God the Father. And so we are united as one body, the body of Christ. We are united to Him who is both priest and victim in order for us to be able to give ourselves in the way that we should. So much of the Mass, the perfect act of worship and gratitude to God, is brought to light through the events and the persons that we spoke about, as well as uh, in various ways. We spoke how from the movement of the Old Testament to the New Testament, we have uh, the, 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 the reading in the synagogue in the worship of the Old Testament to then the sacrifices that take place in the temple. As well, we have a feeding on the Holy Scriptures in the ambo, and then a feeding as we move to the altar in the second half of Mass. And so we spoke about how both of these two pieces of the Mass uh, are, are, are both very enriching, but at the same time they also kind of mimic the worship of the Jews, but in a way that fulfills the worship of the Jews. And the reason why is not because we do it better, but it's because God is the one who gave us this worship, and God is the priest that enables us to offer this worship. In today's episode, 
I would like to speak a little bit more about these four different ends to which we sacrifice. That is, the ends of worship, which is the highest, thanksgiving, uh, propitiation, as well as petition. These are very significant parts of why we worship, and therefore, to better understand them, hopefully, will help us to engage ourselves more as we worship. I quote from Monsignor Gura once again, quote, The church by no means teaches that the sacrifice of Christ on the altar adds new satisfaction or new merits or new graces or benefits or anything else to the treasure of salvation acquired on the cross. But she teaches only that the price of our redemption paid by the sacrifice of the cross, being incapable of increase and inexhaustible in its fullness, is actually applied to individuals and benefits them by means of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. End quote. Page 173. This, again, we've spoken about, we've touched on, but what a beautiful thing to recognize that while we participate in the Mass, we say, we profess, we believe firmly that we are presenting again there the most holy sacrifice of Christ that took place 2,000 years ago. And although that is a most enriching sacrifice, we do not believe that we are adding anything to that sacrifice. It's not as if Christ is being sacrificed again and again because, well, it just wasn't sufficient enough the first time, but rather we make present that sacrifice so that we might bind ourselves to it. But at the same time as we bind ourselves to the sacrifice of Christ, He binds to us, He gives to us, He offers and pours upon us the very merits and the graces and the celestial glories that He has earned by his sacrifice. So Christ earned it 2,000 years ago, but every Mass we are having those applied to us, that which he merited, uh, including the forgiveness of our sins as we continue to, for, to, to sin. We don't need him to be sacrificed again, but we should run to Mass, as we will see later in this class, because we are able to make propitiation, atonement, to appease the anger of God, to calm and smooth out, in a sense, the offenses that we have caused him, and be back in right relationship with him. So let us begin with worship. As I said, this is, of the four, the most important. How do we give worthy worship to God? As I've spoken about before, we cannot do so. We're not able to give God what he deserves. We are finite, human, weak, and sinful creatures. How could we ever give an infinite, eternal, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect, sinless God what he deserves? This cannot ever happen. But if God himself becomes man and he gives us the form of worship that he desires and we are united in him who is the principal uh, sacrificer sacrifice, uh, and one who acts and offers that worship, then yes, now we actually have a capacity to worship God in the way that we should. We have the ability to put into practice and to fulfill religion, right religion with God. That is, to give to God his due, to offer him the reverence and the devotion and the love that is his. You see, when we worship, how are we able to give something that is more than ourselves? Well, we can't. But if we are united to Christ in his worship, then can we give God the Father something more, that is more than just me? Absolutely. Because we're giving God the Father, the church, the liturgy, sins Christ as a sacrificial victim to the Father. Now, this is perfect worship that is so profound. This worship is, should be at least, considered Trinitarian as well. 
As I continue to mention, Christ is the principal priest, he is the victim, and therefore he is continuously the one that offers. Uh, even in terms of the, the, the priest, he is the one that is acting in the priest in order to offer the sacrifice of the Mass. So he is the one that offers, but we can't forget that this action is Trinitarian. God the Father, he's the one that sin, sins the Son. He's the one that sends him on this mission for the salvation of the world, as well as for the glories and the elevation of humanity itself. And so God the Father sends the Son, and the Son then gives and offers himself back in his human uh, nature to the Father. And it's the Holy Spirit then that is sent by the Father and the Son in order to unite us to the Son in his worship of the Father. So because Christ is both divine and human in natures, and these natures are not mixed, but rather are perfectly united together, then we are united to Christ through the Holy Spirit at the moment of baptism. We're united to him even more at the moment of confirmation. We're united to him even more at the moment of the Eucharist, at the moment of the anointing of the sick, at matrimony, at uh, holy orders, at every one of the sacraments. These are the primary ways in which we are able to enter more deeply into the union with the church, with Christ, with God the Father, with the Holy Trinity in general, with the life of God. That is what is being poured into us. When we speak about eternal life, we're simply speaking about participation in the Most Holy Trinity, in the life of God. That's what's offered to us. That's what's given to us. And primarily, this is done by way of the sacraments. Never underestimate the importance of the sacraments for our salvation, as well as for the salvation of the world. <clears throat> Christ has given the church the authority and the power to make his sacrifice present via the Mass. Therefore, the Church, in union with Christ, offers His precious gift to God. Always, He is the eternal High Priest. He is the one that offers, but He is in union, of course, with His body, and as we know from St. Paul, the body of Christ, that is the Church. Secondly, we move to thanksgiving. Again, as human persons, separated from God, there's nothing that we can do to ever give God gratitude for what he has given us. Think about it. We can't give God gratitude for creating us. What could we ever pay to God for our own existence? That's something that goes beyond anything that we have. So we can't pay God back for that. And much less, we can't pay back God for even one single drop of blood that Jesus Christ spilt on our behalf. We can't offer God thanksgiving that actually, in a sense, reorders us and puts us back even with him for what he's done, for even one single breath that he has taken in his human nature, that goes far beyond in generosity, in love and mercy than we could ever repay. So how are we able to pay God back? And again, the answer, just like how are we able to worship God properly, how are we able to fulfill religion? It's by being united to Christ. It's by being united to God who gives himself to God, Jesus, who gives himself to the Father, and that's only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit binding us to Jesus. That's what's offered. And so it's Jesus who makes the perfect act of thanksgiving to the Father. The perfect act of thanksgiving to the Father. And therefore, when we participate in this act of thanksgiving, we are able to give God a perfect thanksgiving. Not on our own accord. Of course, on our part, it's imperfect. On our part, 
we fail because we don't have the perfect amount of faith. We don't have a perfect charity. We don't have perfect purity in our thanksgiving, but Christ does. So we, in a sense, by the power of the Holy Spirit, unite our impoverished, broken form of thanksgiving, united to Christ, whose thanksgiving is absolutely perfect. And therefore, the thanks that we give to God, the Father, is by way of the Son, through the Holy Spirit, and therefore we are able to give perfect thanksgiving only because Christ is giving it on our behalf and with us and for us, and it enables us to do it with him. So all of this obviously is rather important, but we cannot leave out one of the most obvious and most significant parts of this. Eucharistia. This is the Greek word for Eucharist. We give God beautiful, enriching, holy, and supernatural, above human nature, thanksgiving when we participate in the Eucharist, when we take advantage of what He has given us for salvation. Now, I just want to pause here and so uh, consider what we are saying. We are able to give God proper thanksgiving by simply participating well in what He has given us to give Him thanks. So, we are so weak in our humanity. We depend on God so much that we are incapable of even giving thanks to Him in the proper way. So what He does is He gives us an even more precious and beautiful gift in order for us to receive so that we can give Him thanks properly. In other words, we do pretty much nothing as humans. All that's required of us is to get out of our own way so that God can inspire and strengthen and fill us with grace and divine charity so that we can live the life that He desires. We give God such good gratitude when we humbly and devotionally, filled with charity, receive the Holy Eucharist. We are saying, thank you, God, for sending your Son. Thank you, Christ, for giving us the church. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the soul within that church and uniting us to the worship and the thanksgiving and the petition and reparation of Christ himself to the Father. Thank you for this Mass. Thank you for my blessings. Thank you for my body that works. Thank you for my family. Thank you for everything. We're thanking God well when we receive the Eucharist, when we come to Mass. That's what we should keep in mind. When we say, oh, I don't want to go to Mass. It's the same old thing. It's just boring. We're saying, I don't need to give God thanks. I can give God thanks my way. I can do it better myself. So it's not going to have anything to do with Christ's actions. It'll be, I'll just tell him thank you. Yes, like me spending three minutes on my knees saying thank you to God by myself, rather than obeying and giving thanks the way that he desires, like that's going to be some kind of equal thing. Now, of course, it's a beautiful thing to give thanks to God on your knees for three minutes or for longer or for shorter of a time. Any time is good to give thanks to God. But if we're not obeying him, if we're not uniting ourselves in the way that he desires, if we don't worship him and thanks, uh, give thanks to him in the way that he desires, then we're not able to do it perfectly. We're not ever able to give thanks in the way that we should. We're not ever able to give worship in the way that we should. Therefore, always in obedience, in humility, in devotion, in love, and charity, we approach the Eucharist, recognizing that in doing so, oh, we're able to please God so much. Why? Why would God care that much to give us this? Because his perfect and immense amount of love is such that he desires our own sanctity. You see, when you love somebody, you will the good of somebody else. When you love your spouse, you want everything that's good for her. 
or him. When you love a friend, you want their good. You don't get happy when they stub their toe. You might, you might laugh a little bit, but you, ideally, you're not rejoicing internally because of this, but rather, you are more likely to be very empathetic, that is, to feel and put yourself into their own suffering because you love them and you want what is good for them. And so you desire, hopefully, you hunger for their salvation because that's the highest good for them. But above all, God, in His perfect love for us, He desires our sanctification. He desires to elevate us that after this life, to rejoice in throwing open the gates of heaven for us and giving us as many graces, as many merits, excuse me, as many merits, celestial uh, riches as, as is possible, that we cooperated in, in cooperating with His graces that we have merited on this earth. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to reach high levels of glory in heaven. And so He gives us so much in this earth, particularly in relation to the liturgy, particularly in relation to the church and in her rituals. And so in living this out and in understanding this, we are able to do what God wants. That is, we are able to grow in holiness by allowing God to make us holy. We are able to grow in perfection by allowing God in His perfection to live and dwell in us, change us, transform us, and perfect us. This is the love of our God. He wants the very good for us. And so in the same way, we should not only go to Mass to give God right gratitude and to give God right worship, but we should want what God wants. And what He wants is to sanctify us, and what He wants is to save souls. Therefore, the more that I come to Mass, the more uh, worthy that I enter into this profound liturgy, the more I'm able to become holy by God working in me, the more that He's able to use me as an instrument for the salvation of other souls. If you really want to transform the life of your son, if you have a friend or a, a child or a spouse that is not a part of the Catholic Church or has left the Catholic Church for some reason or another and you desire their transformation, their conversion, go to Mass and go often in every Mass. Offer that for the sake of the conversion of that soul. Trust in God firmly. Pray and trust. Psalms 115, 12 through 13 says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will lift up the cup of salvation. Again, what can I render to God for what he's done? Absolutely nothing separated from him. But with him united to him, oh, so much I can give. In fact, I can give him to himself. I can give the Son to the Father. That is rather profound. And in doing so, as I lift up the cup of salvation, as we participate in the Mass, which is the new chalice of salvation, that is us giving right and due and holy and perfect and supernatural thanksgiving to our God. May God forever be praised. Let us go through a couple more quotes. Again from Monsignor Gurr, quote, of ourselves we cannot indeed render suitable thanks for even the least benefit, but by the holy sacrifice of the Mass we are enabled fully to discharge our entire debt of gratitude, were it even infinite." End quote. That is profound. We are able to discharge, we are able to overcome, we are able to pay back the gratitude that we owe, even if that gratitude is infinite that we owe. We are able to pay that back because we are offering an infinitely perfect, 
infinitely perfect sacrifice to the Father. That is the sacrifice of His Holy Son. Another quote. Of ourselves. Excuse me. Christ offers the Eucharist, Eucharistic sacrifice for us that He may in our stead thank God and supply for the deficiency of our thanksgiving. And one more from St. Bernard of Clairvaux. He says, quote, It is like unto a scorching wind which dries up the fountain of compassion, the that of mercy. End quote. In other words, to be ungrateful is something that is rather destructive in the soul. To forego Mass in order to sleep in. To skip Mass because we have something better to do or we just simply don't want to go. Or, you know what, we're out of town and it's going to take some kind of uh, cumbersome action or cumbersome drive in order to get to the Mass. I'm going to have to look up where and what time. And these, these kinds of thoughts we must eradicate, recognizing that what the Mass is is something that is supernatural. It's something given by Christ Himself. It's something I cannot afford to miss. I should never want to miss. It's something so profound, not only for my own peace and uh, growth in this life, but in particularly for my entrance into salvation in the next, as well as my growth and height of sanctity and glory that I reach in the next life. For better understanding of that, uh, ideally you will find some of those answers as to what that means, what are the different grades of holiness uh, in, 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 in glory in heaven. You'll find that in my uh, series on grace. And merit. Propitiation. Now I've used this word interchangeably with atonement or reparation. Uh, although there are slight distinctions in the definitions of these terms, we will stick with prep, uh, propitiation for the sake of this episode. When thinking of propitiation, although that is a large word, think of the appeasement of God's wrath. When we sin, we offend God. When we sin in some way or another, we damage our relationship with God. And in fact, when we sin mortal sins, then we sever our relationship with God. That life, that grace of God, that charity that He has filled us with so that we can act in ways that actually merit reward in heaven, all of that is gone. It's destroyed at the single commitment of one mortal sin. This is why we must run to the sacrament of confession with regularity, to confess every one of our mortal sins to the best of our ability. And again, to the best of our ability. It's not something, if I haven't been confessing my mortal sins for the last 20 years, that I must meticulously know absolutely every sin or somehow there's no way I can enter into heaven. That is not what we profess. You do the absolute best you can. Ask your guardian angel to help you to remember, to illuminate your memory, to clear your mind so that you know exactly what to confess and how to confess it and to give you a very contrite heart so that you turn towards conversion as quickly and as perfectly as you can. But sins cause various effects. Sins cause problems in the world. Starvation and, and death and, and, and suffering and all kinds of problems that we see in the world. If there was not sin, we wouldn't have divisions of nations. We wouldn't have wars. We wouldn't have crimes and murder and these kinds of things. So sin obviously has external effects, but it also has internal effects. As I said, it wounds or even severs our relationship with God. That's rather significant in and of itself, of course. But then other effects of sin are also that it wounds the soul of the one to whom I sin against, as well as 
the, my own soul, I cause wounds, and those wounds need to be healed. And we can find greater and greater healing the more that we ask the Blessed Virgin to bring us to, this, uh, to, to, to her son, where all healing is found. But in addition to this, we also have what's called punishment. This is also one of the effects of sin. There is eternal punishment and there is temporal punishment. Now, eternal punishment is something <clears throat> that is absolutely forgiven at the moment of reconciliation. When you go uh, to receive baptism or when you go to receive absolution in the sacrament of reconciliation, once that sacrament is performed, you no longer have eternal debt. Eternal debt is a debt we can't pay. Eternal debt is hellfire. We can't get out of hell on our own. That's why we needed the sacrifice of Christ. Therefore, when those uh, mercies and graces of God are applied to the soul, for instance, in the sacrament of baptism, we are united to Christ crucified and Christ risen in the sacrament of baptism. We are born into the family of God. That's only possible because by being united to Christ's sacrifice, that sin, original sin, and any others that we might have committed if we got baptized later on, are cleansed from that soul. In addition to this, when we go to the sacrament of reconciliation, when we receive absolution, it's like the blood and the water that poured from the, the, the sight of Christ, that is once again poured out onto that soul to cleanse that defect, that problem, that wound, and that mortal sin that separates us from God. And so it cleanses that. But that doesn't take care of everything. It doesn't take care of the temporal punishment that is still left. Okay? When we speak of temporal punishment, we can actually be speaking of various things. For instance, for, uh, if you take, let's say, uh, uh, the drug cocaine, and you start taking cocaine a couple of times, and you know you shouldn't take it, but you decide to take it anyway, eventually, let's say, you get absolutely addicted, chemically, physically addicted to cocaine. Well, that's one of the effects of that sin of taking cocaine. And that's also the idea when, we, when it comes to other sins, that we get attachments to things. Even when it comes to uh, food or television or things that are not wrong in and of themselves, but when we consume them not in a proper way, when we're unwilling to be detached from them by fasting for a little bit or by turning off the television and going to pray, etc. When we put ourselves in front of the television for two or three hours on a regular basis, this is when we get very attached to it and it becomes very sinful. Because when we have attachments to this world, when we have attachments to things or to people, then when we die, even if we die in the state of grace, which is necessary to go to heaven, we aren't fully purified. We don't belong to God perfectly and in the way in which is necessary in order to enter into heaven. We know nothing unclean enters into heaven. Therefore, purgatory remains for those that still have unconfessed venial sins, that still have residue or scars or wounds that are open from their sins, that still have temporal punishment to be paid. In other words, that temporal punishment needs to be satisfied. Let me give a couple of analogies very quickly to help hammer in the idea of temporal punishment. One, Bishop Sheen, Archbishop Sheen, I should say, he makes the analogy of hammering a nail into a piece of wood. If you take that nail out, that nail is no longer there, obviously, and therefore the wood, the, the wood, the wood, the wood is much smoother. That nail is like the sin. You hammer in a sin into your own soul. But when you take that nail out of that wood, it's not as if that wood is perfect again. 
Rather, it has that hole. It has that problem, that defect now. And that hole needs to be filled up. Now, God can absolutely heal all of that. He can rip that sin out, that, that nail out, and He can also make that piece of wood like new. But this doesn't all happen immediately at one point unless God sees fit to do so. For instance, this actually does occur in terms of temporal punishment uh, as well as eternal punishment for those that are baptized at a later date. For instance, if you get baptized when you're 20, we believe that baptism not only forgives all of your actual sins, that is the sins you yourself committed, we also believe that it forgives original sin, that is the sin of Adam, and we believe that it forgives all temporal punishment, that is the part that we must pay. It's that hole that's still left in the wood. Another example that helps perhaps give this idea of what we still owe that is, take a boy who knows he's not supposed to uh, play baseball in his backyard. He decides to go out, get his bat. He starts swinging that, that bat at that ball, and he connects, has a home run. But the problem is that that home run goes right into the window of his, mother, of his, of his home. And therefore, his father comes out, of course, angry, and, therefore, and, and tells his son, you know better than this, don't ever do that again. His son apologizes, knows that he's messed up, says he's so sorry, doesn't want to offend his, his father, uh, and, and, and the father forgives him immediately. He says, fine, our relationship's good, I understand, you made a mistake, you apologized, we're good. But that window's still broken. Their relationship is, is good, it's healed. But the window is still broken. And because the father loves his son, he wants his son to understand consequences follow from our actions. That our choices, they actually have effects that affect us as well. And so he says, you know what? I give you an allowance. I give you $10 every week. I'm going to make sure that $5 of that for the next five weeks is withheld so that you help to pay for this broken window. He says, I'm going to pay for the rest of it, but you're going to pay $25, $5 for five weeks to help pay for that. Now, in reality, that father's the one that's giving the allowance. In reality, the father's the one that's paying everything. He does all, it's all his money. But the son is receiving less as a result. And therefore, that son is, in a sense, feeling the consequences of his actions. In the same way, we can't pay the debt that we owe. Just like that son, he didn't have enough money to pay for that window. Christ says, I'm going to pay your eternal debt. And your temporal debt, I'm also going to pay that. But I'm going to make you participate in that. I'm going to give you all of these graces that are going to move you to go pray a rosary, they are going to move you to go to mass, that are going to move you to go to confession, that are going to move you to help that person on the side of the road, that are going to move you to avoid that, that temptation. And when we're in the state of grace and we cooperate with those graces that are moving us towards these, these actions, these holy things, then God rewards us with that. Although really, all of those graces, He merited on the cross. Even the benefits to cleanse that temporal punishment, He merited on the cross. But the more that we do these things, He wipes out that temporal punishment. He fills in that hole in that piece of wood. It's like that allowance that was given to the Son. It's being applied to that broken window. It's fixing that window. And so God is allowing us, through Mass and through many other means, to pay for these temporal punishments. I say all of that to say that we pay much of the temporal punishment in Mass. So propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath, we rightly deserve hell. God says, when, you're, when we're in the state of grace, God says, I'm, I'm, I'm protecting you from that. 
take that off the, off the table. But I want you still to participate and pay what little you can by simply cooperating with my graces. And in doing so, I will give you more and more satisfaction. Satisfaction is the theological term meaning to the payment of that temporal punishment. And so if we don't pay all of that on earth, in purgatory, we continue to pay uh, the, the temporal punishment that's due until we then go to heaven. I will speak more on this if you go to my series on grace. I will break open a little bit more uh, the, the ins and outs and the distinctions between graces as well as merits as well as temporal punishments and purgatory and all the like. So, in terms of uh, propitiation, not only do we pay this temporal punishment by doing this, Again, always in the state of grace. If we're not in the state of grace, we are not able to pay that temporal punishment. But in addition to the temporal punishment, when we come to Mass, we are also able, in a sense, to open, let's say, God's liberality of graces. When we commit sins, we hurt ourselves because we avoid being given more and more graces. It's like a mother who gives a cookie and we slap the cookie out of her hand. She's not likely to hand us another cookie, right? In fact, she might even pull her hand away. Well, hold on, what was that about? Why don't you get your attitude in check? Then we'll talk about you getting another cookie. And so in a similar way, and this is a very rough analogy, and in fact, it's one that's off the top of my head, so bear with me. But the idea is that when we sin, God is pouring out these graces, and then all of a sudden, because of those sins, because of those offenses, because of our ingratitude, because of our rejection against Him, again, us lowly creatures that in no way should ever offend our perfect, holy, eternal God, He starts pulling back some of those. He says, I'm still going to give you some graces because I'm immensely loving, I'm immensely good, but not all of those that I was going to give you. But when we go to Mass, when we appease God's wrath, when we participate in this act of propitiation, this perfect act of propitiation, then we are able to, in a sense, ask God, or excuse me, we are in an able, in a sense, to move God, again, because of His love, not because of our actions, to pour out more and more graces, more liberally upon us. But not just us. We're also able to make reparations and propitiation for the sake of other people's souls. We're able to do that for the sins of our own children, for the sins of our own spouses, for the sins of our own friends, for the sins of even our own enemies. That's what we should be doing when we go to Mass as well. So keep that in mind, that you're able to say, in terms of propitiation, God, I offer this for the sake of the sins of X, Y, Z, whoever, or also yourself. And then, as another quote, quote, as a sacrifice of propitiation, the Mass has especially the power of satisfying for those temporal punishments which after the pardon of mortal and venial sins, would otherwise have to be undergone either in this world or in purgatory. Again, just trying to emphasize these two very significant parts of propitiation that I spoke about. Keep in mind that what we're able to do in the Mass is profound in terms of the salvation of souls. In fact, even if you continue every Mass to go and ask God to convert the soul of your child back to Catholicism, and you go to the grave never seeing that done, God forbid, but that occurs, you don't know until after this life 
maybe the Blessed Virgin was able to convert a thousand people in some other part of the world by you, in love, going to all of those various masses throughout your life. And what a profound badge of honor and reward will you have waiting for you as you enter in and discover the amount of graces and benefits that have been applied to the world because of your unity to the sacrifice of Christ. Again, this isn't something you've done. Take the analogy with the boy with the allowance. Christ is the one that pays all the allowance. He's the one that's gotten all that money in a sense. He's the one that's earned all of those graces of conversion, of mercy, of pardon, of love, etc. But he wants us to cooperate with him. This is why Paul says, where Christ's sufferings lack, that's where our sufferings occur. That's what we uh, suffer for. That's why we embrace these things. And so it's in our sufferings, but it's also in so many other things, like our spiritual works of mercy and our corporal works of mercy and going to Mass and all of these things that we're able to in, uh, unite ourselves to Christ in a way that not only gives worship to God, not only gives thanksgiving to God, but also gives profound propitiation to God. And so let us stop sinning, which offends God and impedes those graces and causes temporal punishments, but rather let us enjoy Mass and enter into Mass so intimately and profoundly that we're able to uh, unite ourselves with Christ that then causes in God's overwhelming goodness more and more uh, acts of propitiation, or excuse me, more and more, let's say, appeasement uh, of, of, the, of the wrath of God upon humanity. We need that appeasement, especially now in our times that are rapidly moving towards, let's say, the end of the age. Lastly, petition. This is the fourth part. The next end of Mass is petition, which we will discuss um, in, a, in a further class. However, just briefly to mention, I would like to say that in petition, we bring our needs and the needs of other people to Mass. In other words, realize that when you come to Mass, you are given a profound power. Now, it's not guaranteed that what you ask for will come true. And again, see the series on grace to better understand what I mean by that. But realize that you have so much power placed in your hands through petition. And so as we wait between this class and the next, give that some reflection and some consideration. Because God loves us. He loves to respond to our petitions that are made in His name, that are made according to His will, that are given for the sake of our own salvation and for the sake of the salvation of other people. So let us always bring our petitions to Mass. Let us worship God in everything that we are, everything that we have, but most particularly and most powerfully in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Let us give proper and due thanksgiving to God, which is only possible in the sacred liturgy, and let us offer acts of propitiation every time we go to Mass by being in the state of grace and by offering that for the appeasement of God's wrath upon our soul and the souls of others. The more that we do this, the more that we uh, reflect upon these four parts uh, or these four goals or ends uh, for, the, for the Mass, then the more second nature it'll become for us every time we go to Mass to realize what we're doing, to rather not just sit there in the pew listening and not truly paying attention, uh, paying attention and being devoted, but rather to enter in uh, accepting everything that is occurring and participating in that to the best that we can internally, 
primarily and most importantly. May the God uh, who is the God of our salvation and our love and our creation and everything, may he richly bless and strengthen you this day and each day. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.